welcome to another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spendlove, and we are joined in the studio by our co-host, Mr. Ethan Scroggins. How are you, Ethan? It's good. It's been a while. It has been. Since I've been on the podcast, so. Yeah. And since we've been in the studio, we've been having a lot of them over Zoom, so. Yeah. I mean, it's effective, but I think this is a little bit better of an atmosphere, to be honest. Yeah, I do too. Definitely prefer the in-person. I mean, when we've got people... Here, there, and everywhere during the summer, Zoom helps, but nothing like being in person and being able to sit across from your guests. So we are very excited today to be joined by uh, Professor Jeremy Counselor to be talking uh, about uh, evidence and storytelling and a lot of different really cool things. So, Professor, thanks so much for joining us in the studio today. Thanks for having me, Chris. You have a great voice, by the way. I mean, I've had you in class, but I didn't realize. I'm actually a little bit intimidated sitting here. Well, I can by, scoot the chair down. Yeah, if that, lower your lower chair. The chair. You're, you're taller there you than I am. You have a better <laughs> voice than I do. So. Well, I don't know about that second one, but I, I appreciate it. It's, uh, I think you have to be a little bit in love with the sound of your own voice to start a podcast, uh, which I, I, I... Know thyself. Know thyself. You know, we've all got our vices. Uh, well, we're really excited to have you here, Professor, to, like I said, talk about a lot of different mm-hmm. things. Uh, we, I think everyone, or almost everyone, gets to see you their very first quarter at Baylor. Is that right? Is there anybody else who teaches Civ Pro? There is. So I teach civil procedure in the fall for the fall entering class, for the spring entering class, and for the summer entering class, except for every third summer I don't I don't teach civil procedure. So if you happen to start in that summer where I'm on sabbatical, then you wouldn't have me for civil procedure, but everybody else does. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I, I thought I'd talk to maybe a couple people who hadn't had you, which is why I asked. But cool. Well, almost every one of us gets the privilege of uh, sitting in your civil procedure class. And then we don't really see you until practice court. Uh, so I, I think a lot of our listeners are going to be very interested to hear a little bit more about you and get maybe a taste of, you know, coming attractions uh, in terms of, you know, what you talk about in PC, that kind of thing. So uh, one of the things we always like to ask our guests right at the beginning is to share their story with us. Um, You know, there's many paths to the top of the mountain, and uh, we'd like to give our our listeners some inspiration in terms of what a career in the law might look like. So if you wouldn't mind, we'd love hearing, uh, excuse me, love to hear your, your story, maybe from law school or if there's a, a better inciting incident uh, to start with, uh, and then to kind of where you are you know, in your career now. Well, I'll, I, I don't know, I'll, I'll start earlier than that. I was, I was uh, born in Houston, Texas. I grew up in, in Humble, Texas, which is north of Houston, about 20 miles. At the time when I was a kid growing up, it was really a different place than Houston. Since then, it's been swallowed up by by Houston, but but I grew up, um, you know, in a, surrounded by pine trees and cows and pump jacks, and had a great great childhood. Um, I have a younger sister and I have a younger brother, um, and you know, I don't. I'm not sure what about my upbringing made me want to be a lawyer, but from a young age, I did want to be a lawyer. Part of it was probably that my parents told me you should be a lawyer oh and I think because okay. I, I had helps. A, I, yeah I was a smart aleck and I, w- I had um, <clears throat> you know I was sort of a kid who would I think talk out of turn and wasn't afraid of 
speaking my piece, like in church or something. I'd be nine years old expressing my opinions on, on things, you know, sure. entirely inappropriate and foolish things that I would say, but I wasn't afraid to do it. And my parents would always kind of shush me by saying, you know, mate, one day you, you can be a lawyer. <laughs> and so that, I guess that got into my head a little bit. And then um, when I got a, a little older, I, I, I thought about actually, um, no one, no one in my family had ever gone and graduated from college. So kind of a formative experience for me is I was a, I can't remember if I was a, at the end of my junior year of high school, probably the end of my junior year of high school, and all my friends are talking about college. They're talking about going to college, going to college. And I was like, well, nobody at my house is talking about me going to college. So I got really nervous, and I told my dad, I remember exactly where I was in my house. I remember exactly where he was. He's standing in front of the, the cooktop, and I'm sitting at this little countertop that where I can see him. And I said, I don't remember exactly what it said, but something like, hey, I need to get things going for college and, you know, knowing it's going to cost money and all this stuff. Right. And my dad just told me, he goes, hey, basically, we wish you well, but when you're 18, you know, you're on your own, which had been both of my parents' sure. experience and all their siblings' experience. You know, if, if college is the way you want to go, go for it. But, you know, you're kind of on your own on this mm -hmm. thing. And that was a stunning moment for me. And so I seriously considered joining the military. I was kind of on the verge of that. Mm. And my dad intervened at that point because I was going to sign the, the papers. And um, he intervened at that point and said, you're not going wow. to go in the military. Yeah. And um, he said, look, here's some, here's some ways you can get some money for college. So I, you know, that's what I ended up doing, go to college. And then... Throughout college, I was I was sort of dead set on being a lawyer at that point. And um, Baylor Baylor is where I went to law school. It is the only law school I applied to um, because I was told by a pre-law advisor, if you want to be a trial lawyer, that's where you go. That's where you go. Yeah. And um, that's what I wanted to do. So hmm. um, after law school, I worked for a little bit at um, Bracewell. At, at the time, it was Bracewell and Patterson. Now it's Bracewell. And uh, then I went and did uh, a clerkship with Judge Ronaldo Garza on the Fifth Circuit. And then I went back to Bracewell until I came to the faculty here in 2003. So I've been here now for, for 19 years. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Um, so you, when you went to college, kind of after, you know, after maybe getting over some hurdles or whatever you want to say, you then had your, your heart dead set on being a lawyer. What made you want to be a trial lawyer specifically? You know, I don't have a great reason for that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I was unaware. I was only vaguely aware there were lawyers other than trial lawyers <laughs> sure. at that time. Sure. You know, um, I was aware that, um, you know, Tom Cruise and a few good men look like a trial lawyer and that looked like, you know, something good to do. Um, that, like a lot of students, are, that movie was, that's what I want to do. Yeah. That is the, it affirmed for me, that's the kind of thing I want to do. Um, so I did, however, when I clerked for, when I was a, uh, did a clerkship for uh, Baker Botts and Bracewell Patterson in the summer after my second year, 
I did, at least at Bracewell, I don't know if I did it at Baker Botts, but at least at Bracewell, I did part of my summer in the transactional section. Mm, okay. Because I, you know, I had an, or I was working on an MBA at that time, and I thought, you know, maybe I'll see what this is about. I never thought I would actually, I thought it was highly unlikely I'd ever go in that direction, but it was something I think I'd worked for a few weeks in, a, in the transactional section just to sort of get a view on it to make sure, yeah, I... Because I'd been so dead set on being a trial lawyer, it's sort of one of those pause, like, wait a minute, should I really be this kind of narrowly focused on what kind of lawyer I, I want to be? Sure. Okay. It didn't change my mind. That yeah. experience did not change my mind. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I worked, uh, when I was I was much younger, I think right out of high school, uh, on the legal team of a, of a big corporation headquartered in San Antonio. And the whole time, I was like, so when are you guys going to trial? You know, when are you guys going to trial? And... Yeah, they just didn't, right? It was just contracts and that kind of thing. And I think it, it, this is going to uh, lead into my next question. Does that big corporation start with a V? It started with a T. A T, okay. Yeah, okay. but not the V. Okay. My dad <laughs> almost worked for the one with the V. He ended up working yeah. with the one with the T, and that's how I okay. got that okay. job. <laughs> okay. But, uh, yeah, circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's good. Um, but my, my question is then, because I... I, I Remember feeling the same way as a kid, right? I was always getting notes home. Chris is talking too much. Yep. He's got a voice that carries, right? He's always talking to yep. somebody else. He's always asserting his opinion. And I, too, just kind of have felt drawn to be a trial lawyer, right? Again, Baylor was my top choice for that very reason. Um, and so I'm curious, uh, you know, if you would postulate a little bit about the connection between folks like like us, if I can be so bold, or those of us who you know are very talkative and outspoken and that kind of thing, and wanting to become a trial lawyer, is it just we need somebody to talk to? Is it we need to be the center of attention? I mean, what what do you think, you know, drives a person like that? Because I, I feel like a lot of us, you know, at least a lot of my friends, you know, that I've made here at Baylor Law fall into that category as well. Do you think there's just something innate that needs to just be heard in us, or? I'm just curious, you know, your, your thoughts about this. This, this. this sounds like like a conversation with my wife about the Enneagram, okay? I don't, I don't know what Enneagram I am. I've never been tested. My wife tells me I'm an eight, and she, I don't even know what that means. Sure. <laughs> but, but, I, but I do know, I mean, I think some people, um, I mean, when I, I got the same notes home from yeah. school. I mean, I always got the, you know, for the conduct it was U for unsatisfactory, N needs improvement, S is satisfactory, E is exemplary or excellent or something. Yeah. I always got the N or the U, and it was always for, for talking. But I, I, well, I think what I learned is that I can, I enjoyed getting a reaction out of people mm-hmm. based on the things that I could say. If I could get them to laugh or um, if I could, and, and frankly, if I could, win an argument and I don't know when I was a little kid if I would have thought of it that way but but to to win an argument in the context of a of a discussion and also I think early on the tendency to turn discussion into something that must be won or lost yeah and of course it's not true of of discussion it doesn't have to be a winner and a loser but I think that may be a characteristic is that we, we 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 are competitive we want there to be a winner and a loser um and I also think that some, not all, I don't think I would put myself in this category. Some people want 
they're, they're good at talking because they like to be adored. Mm-hmm. They like to have an audience and they like to be adored. Um, <clears throat> um, and I think that's, that's, that's great too. I don't think that's me. I don't think that's my motivation. But I think a lot of people who are, have sort of the gift of gab, that's their, that's their thing. Yeah. yeah. For, for me, yeah. I, think, I think for me, I've always been really interested in people who are good at talking. Mm. Um, I, when I was a kid, I would listen to um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. speeches, audios of it, sure. because I thought, and, and obviously this is not even subject to, he's an incredible orator. Right. I, would, I remember um, listening to Eddie Murphy raw mm-hmm. and Eddie Murphy delirious, and this is... I'm listening to him in the 80s, shortly after these came out. Literally, it's an album. I have, an, I have a record of them. And I'm listening in my bedroom, keeping the volume as low as possible because my parents would have been, you know, just right. very upset. But Eddie Murphy is a good talker. Um, I've always been an admirer of people who are really good at communicating orally. And I, I just think... Um, that's been an interest of mine for a long time. And a trial lawyer is a natural outlet for that. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I, I remember some of my favorite, you know, records. Not that it all has to be parallel, but just, just digging into this a little bit more. A lot of my favorite albums were comedy albums too, yeah. right? Because you just, you're yeah. just hypnotized by the way that these yeah. people can think yeah. about things, spin the words into ways that you had never considered before right and and how they can just conjure up images stories jokes whatever it is and just command the language i mean it's 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 fascinating uh for one thing and then you know you get into school and you start reading like you're talking about martin luther king but you know great great speeches or you know even the classics and that kind of thing you're like this is a a through line for almost all these people right george washington thomas jefferson whoever so Martin Luther King is also a great writer, but you know there's a whole other dimension to communication. Uh, the, the the oral communication is you know where the pause is, where the voice rises, where it slows down. I mean, all of that. I'm just I'm just mesmerized mm-hmm. by, and it can be something as important as you know I have a dream, and something as trivial as you know. Eddie Murphy talking about you know wanting to go to McDonald's and and that whole bit he does which is which is just brilliant and and he and just great the ability to communicate so effectively is something I really admire and I've, I think I've always I've always admired it. I mean, to an extent, I think you if you're this far teaching other individuals, you have to believe that that's somewhat teachable. But do you think innately people have higher ceilings in regards to natural speaking? Or do you think that, you know, you can build a, a good, solid speaker from the ground up? I think I think both are true. I think both of those things are true. I think some people do have a talent for it. But talent is insufficient. And I think some people um, maybe don't take to it as naturally, but they can definitely be, they can definitely improve. Um, one of the things that I see in our courtrooms during exercises is uh, 
you know, pe- one of the things that gets into people's way is they think they have to be a certain way, talk a certain way, behave a certain way to be an effective trial lawyer. And certainly there are techniques that you need to use. This is a, it's a craft. Um, but I, something I tell students is what you're trying to do is be yourself in the courtroom and to, to sort of drop away all the facade stuff and be yourself. I think that's, that's really important because ultimately in a courtroom, what, what you have to be is believable. You have to be believable. And anything that's artifice is going to, it won't last the duration of the trial. The jury will know that's not real. But if you're you, you will be believable. Even, even if you aren't particularly compelling in the way that we think of compelling speakers typically, you will be believable. And jurors tend to go with the lawyers they believe. And so I think that's, that's really important, I think, to put out of your mind kind of the stereotype of the really persuasive, um, slick, smooth-talking lawyer is probably important. As you, as you go into practice court and let that sort of fall away, what you're trying to say is uh, the truth. And you don't, you don't have to be Martin Luther King to say the truth. You don't, you don't have to be someone as obviously talented when it comes to um, communication as he was to say something that's true. One of the things that I, I've described, just for example, argument, arguing to a jury I've said it's it's reasoning passionately with the jury, or, or at least sincerely, you know. And we can all reason. That's another thing some people are better at than others, but we can all reason and we can all be sincere. We can all be credible. And that that's persuasive. Those things those two those two things are together are very persuasive, regardless of, you know, um, kind of do you do all the things that make someone regarded as an incredible communicator. We were talking about that, um, that authenticity factor with another one of our guests recently, Jeff Janes, who's a prosecutor out in Limestone County. And, you know, I, in fact, I brought up something that you had mentioned to us. I think it was in a PC2 class, if not one of our, our lectures, but uh, where you had said nothing but the authentic you, your authentic self, is going to withstand the crucible, is how you put it, uh, of trial. And and Jeff really reinforced that. I mean, he's, you know, Jeff is a is, he's a gunslinger. Like he does a really great job out there. He doesn't have a lot of, you know, theatric uh, aspects to his personality. He's not, you know, he doesn't have a lot of highs and lows and that kind of thing. But he gets the job done because that's authentic him. And so it was really cool you know, last summer when I was out there to see that version and then to come in, you know, to the PC courtrooms this, this past quarter or two and kind of see how you would model things, Professor Wren would model things, Professor Fraley, and the through line, although all three of you and Jeff have very different styles, the through line is authenticity. And that's just, you know, that's just got to be at the core. I think I am by my nature a little more theatrical than most, um, not all, but, but, but then a lot of lawyers but that's who I am and I and I and I think you know to be sure you've got to you know get rid of some of the rough edges I mean Mm -hmm. there's some things I'll do in class that students will see me do in class I would never do in a courtroom 
you know, I would never yell. <laughs> sure. You know, I mean, you, you've seen me. I'll just like not yell at someone, but just yell really loud to make a point. I'd never do that in a courtroom. I've pounded my fist on a podium in a courtroom. I'd never, I mean, in a classroom, I'd never do that in a courtroom. So, you know, I, I want to rein in a little insight. Sure. As long as I'm being me, yeah, I'm hey, good to yeah. go. I mean, I think you can you can be you, authentically you, and be a professional at the same time. And we right. all have our professional limitations, we decorum and uh, requirements in the courtroom and things. But yeah, no, you, the, the, thing, the thing I'd say jurors are good at is they can smell BS from a mile away, mm-hmm. okay? I mean, from a mile away. And so, and, and the other thing is they're kind of expecting, I mean, like all of us before we went to law school, they're sort of expecting the TV movie version of a lawyer. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> and so when you get that, give that to them, a lot of times they're going to be like, this is phony. You know, yeah. it's phony just like it is on TV. Whereas if you're just being yourself and telling them something true and being credible, you know, it's a pleasant surprise, I think, sometimes for some jurors. Yeah. Do you yeah. have uh, any tips? I mean, for me, I've been on different, two different mock trial teams, and I've done boot camps and stuff, or we've done openings and closings. Any tips for students who get tons of just conflicting feedback in terms of authenticity? Because I've been told one time that I was way too casual, and then I've been told another time that when I tried to change that casual nature, it was too forced. So, like, trying to discover what is really you is kind of a kind of a hard concept for students who are new to trial advocacy like is that something that you just feel out when you get more cases through or is that something that you think you could learn like in the in the span of pc or um, through like just a couple cases i i i think it takes time i mean i think it takes time to sort of uh wear away all the things that are not authentic to you and I think you know you can be authentic and be formal and you can be authentically you and, and be more casual I think those, those are not those are not uh, inconsistent with one another but I think where you where you where you're going wrong is when you're behaving in a way or saying something in a way that you would never do in real life and one of the one of the one specific thing that comes up a lot is, when you're speaking directly to a jury, so jury selection, opening statement, and argument, you have this idea that I've got to give them a speech. I've got a speech to this jury. And that's wrong. I mean, you want to talk to them like they're regular folks because they are regular folks that you meet and, and you need to be your regular self, I think, to, to connect. Um, if you're using big fancy words because you think you're a lawyer and you need to, that's you're using big fancy words when you don't have to. Sometimes we're stuck with them. You know, there's stuff in the jury charts. It's a big fancy word. And we have to use it. But um, I think that's a sign. You know, you're not you're not uh, being your authentic self. You're not being as effective as you as you could otherwise be. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny. the The flip side of that. I'm not going to pre- pretend I'm. You know. A, a walking lexicon or anything like that but I find myself using words like one time we were practicing something opening in in the advocacy class with Professor Little and I just used the word proffered like instead of handed right it was like and what did he proffer you and that just that's what came out or I was in uh, I think it was my second mini trial 
and I was crossing the expert witness and the word that came out instead of, you know, life expectancy was when would this person expire? And that's just like what came out. And both those professors knocked me for that. And so I think that goes back to kind of what you were saying about, well, yeah, that may have naturally come out of you, but you got to knock off some of those edges, even if that is technically authentic, you know, we still, it's a craft and in crafting, you have to shape things. And, you know, although those just came out of my mouth, we got to not do that again. Well, you're you're you, whether you say die or expire. Yeah. Okay. I mean, who you are doesn't come down to word choice. Sure. But that they're getting probably they're 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 pointing that out because you need to be understood. Right. I mean, the authentic you needs to be understood, and I think most people understand what the word yeah. expire <laughs> means, but it is one of those words you don't hear very often, and if they trip over it as they listen just for you know two or four or five seconds now they're not with you anymore yeah um you know not the way um my practice court professor lewis Mulder would say is that's not a jury word mm-hmm. that's not a, that's not a word you use in front of a jury well i use that word you know maybe i use that word but you know it, you have to be understood so i think authenticity doesn't always come down to doesn't always come down to word choice but so you were being your authentic self but you Maybe in that situation, you weren't being as effective as you as you could be. Yeah, and that's an interesting distinction too. Is you know, again, as we develop the craft, and ostensibly that's what the practice court program was for, right? For you to crash through a few of those, you know, initial uh, tries and failures at, at reaching a jury or at finding your authentic voice, and so then we're not making those same mistakes, you know, when we get get out in practice or tripping over those things. Um, one thing I wanted to talk with you about is as of, I believe, the spring, my PC class, uh, the curriculum for practice court has added campfire storytelling to the beginning. We're, we were the first class to do that, right? Is that correct? That is, that is correct. Okay. Cool. I, I just couldn't remember if anybody else had done that. Um, were you involved with adding that in? And if so... Maybe what were some of the reasons why you, you and the practice court faculty wanted to focus on campfire storytelling as the initial exercise for practice court? Yeah, we the spring, the spring class, your your class, your practice court class was the first to do that in practice court. As you know, we've done it in trial advocacy, um, the elective course. Um, Professor Little and I were the ones who brought that forth to the full team and said, hey, we think we might want to experiment with this. So it is at this point an experiment. Okay. I don't know if we will repeat it. Interesting. Okay. Um, we may, we may not. Um, but the but the motivation goes back to this thing we're talking about of, um, you know, being authentic and not speeching, mm-hmm. um, to, to actually tell a story. And so to start with a campfire story where, what we call campfire stories, where we give the student a story and then we make them and it's a you know they, it can be a fairy tale it can be an old kind of story about a monster in the woods or something and then the student has to tell it not read it but tell it in their own words and you know it can involve animal sounds and running around and uh, um, screaming and yelling and all kinds of stuff and the main thing is I think that we're trying to get across is to break out of this expectation that talking to a jury is like um, a moot court argument. Mm -hmm. It's not a moot court argument. It's storytelling. And 
in, in our view in, in practice court, and we, we're not alone in this, but practice court, our view is that storytelling, effective storytelling is the key to effective trial advocacy. That stories are the way humans learn best, and stories are the way that you can most effectively persuade a jury. And so we start with campfire storytelling, the kind of storytelling that humans have been doing throughout um, the existence of our species. Um, for most of the time we've been a species, we've done storytelling. But storytelling, oral storytelling, is how we preserve knowledge. And so it's almost, um, we're, we're just wired to learn through storytelling. And so we use it in a courtroom for that reason. Very cool. Um, and so, I mean, specifically, you know, not to give anything away that the students are going to learn in the first few weeks of practice court, but I mean, what what really practically are some of the parallels between, say, one of these campfire stories and giving your closing argument? Obviously, you were just talking about that's how we learn, but in terms of like skills or you know things that the the students really need to pay attention to as they're developing them. What are some of the most important skills of campfire storytelling that then translate into courtroom storytelling? Well, I think the key is both our stories. You know, what you're doing in a courtroom and what you're what you're doing in our campfire storytelling. Both our stories and stories have scenes. Stories have characters. Stories have arcs. The characters don't end in the same place that they started. And that's true of a campfire story story that's true of the kind of stories we want you to tell in front of a jury and what that does if you're listening to a story the jury is that we we can't help it we when we're hearing a story we can't help but create that movie in our mind we just can't resist it's i mean just try if you're listening to a story, try not to picture it in your mind. It would take an incredible act of concentration. Now, on the other hand, if someone recites a list of facts to you, this event happened, then this event happened, then this event happened, there's no movie being created. It's the movie in the mind of the jurors that is key. Because if they can see it, they can be persuaded by it. And in fact, once they've got their, that movie in their mind uploaded, they're going to resist any theory, any contrary, any fact that doesn't, isn't consistent with that movie in their mind. Right. It's the same thing as when you, um, you read a book. And when you read, a, you read a novel, let's say, you have movies in your mind. In your mind. Um, you go see the movie... Um, the actual movie, when they make a movie based on the novel, right. and you say, ah, the book was better. Well, the, <laughs> the book wasn't necessarily better. The book was first. And so you resisted the things in the movie that were different than the movie you already had in your mind from reading the book. The same phenomenon is at play in, um, in a trial. And I, you know, one of the things that we tell students is, uh, I won't speak for my entire, all my colleagues, but one of the things I find myself saying is, sometimes in a courtroom, is the first lawyer to upload a movie into the minds of the jurors is, is off to a lead, right? Yeah. And so yeah. you'll you often hear an opening sta- two opening statements, and the plaintiff won't tell a story, won't attempt 
to upload a movie into the mind of the jury. They'll say some things about the case, but they won't a- attempt to tell a story. They won't. There won't be a scene. There won't be a, any characters. There won't be any story arc. And then here comes the defendant, and the defendant tells a story. And now the only movie the jury has in their mind is the one the defendant told. There's a contrary narrative, but the plaintiff didn't didn't upload it. Of course, the opposite can be true as well. Sure. For the defendant to then have to try to defeat that movie right. that the plaintiff expertly right. crafted. I wanted to ask you particularly, because I, you know, at various times have heard stories you've told, either uh, in the campfire scenario or in class, uh, and you obviously have an act for it. I mean, it's, you know, anybody who, who listens to those stories, uh, I think, has a movie in their mind. How have you developed your storytelling ability over the years? Is it just telling a bunch of them? Is it reading a bunch of things? I mean, how have you intentionally honed that craft uh, over the years? Well, I mean, a lot of it I got um, in practice court. I got uh, the, what we're doing in practice court is, is not new. These ideas about storytelling, they've been sort of the, the secret sauce of practice court for a long, long time. Hmm. And so... In a sense, I'm an I'm an heir to, to, to all of that, just as all practice court students are. Um, Interesting. And and so I think that's a big part of it. And then, um, you know, I think reading and watching great stories is helpful. There's there's some difference between campfire storytelling and movie making and, and novel writing, I think, and forensic storytelling. What we call forensic storytelling in a court is definitely some very significant differences but um, you know trial and error yeah trial and error you do it you you say I could have done this better even when things seem to go well I think it's important to to stop and say but what could I've done better and and you know, every time you do it you're gonna take some lessons away from it yeah and also I think over time you develop some confidence some confidence that even if it doesn't go well, you're going to be okay. Yeah. You know, you're going to be okay. I think the confidence you need is the confidence to be willing to fail, uh, to risk failure. Yeah. And there's no place better to do that in practice court. And I think, you know, students who are coming up through the law school, it's just something they fear, you know, the, the, the professors are mean and, you know, um, we are going to hold you to a standard. I mean, we are going to insist that you do your very, you give us your very best effort. And we're going to tell you when, when you're wrong, and we're going to tell you there's a better way to do this, as I assume everyone would want us to. I mean, right. the, but for those people who think, I've got to, I just don't want to mess up in practice court, kind of like, I'll keep my head down and I just won't mess up. Let me save the suspense. You're going to mess up. Yeah. You're right. going to fail. This is the place to do it. And one of the other things that I hope practice court gives to students is um, resilience. Hmm. You know, the, the, the fall down, get back up. The dust yourself off, keep moving. Because that is got to be one of the most important attributes of a lawyer. And, and especially a trial lawyer, because you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. There are going to be times when you lose, and you've got to be able to keep going. Um, my uh, mentor, uh, 
colleague until he recently retired, Professor Powell, said something that I try to tell students all the time. You have to hate failure. Hmm. You have to hate it. But you can never fear it. And those two things are really hard to hold together at the same time. That you, you, you can't hate, you have to hate it, but you can't fear it. Because if you fear it, you'll be paralyzed. It will paralyze you. There will be cases that should be tried. You won't try them hmm. because you're afraid. But on the other hand, if you want to be a great trial lawyer, you got to hate losing because that's the thing that's going to make you work, work, work. Well, practice court is the place where, you know what? If you mess up, if you fall down in the courtroom, if you get sideways with a witness, it's okay. Look at you. you got a podcast. <laughs> I mean, you've got a yeah. podcast, and I'm sitting here on your podcast and everything's a okay now I guess you don't know if you passed I PC2 don't yet. yeah I wish that professor would hurry to get those things in I mean well, it's a I thought choice gonna... test for God's sakes but I thought that was I'm... maybe going to be a podcast reveal all yeah. I'm saying to you is even if you fail spin love it's going to be okay that's my point okay but... I'm going to try not to read into <laughs> the vocal inflection it's going to be okay either way it's going to be okay at the point that we're at though there are also a lot of law students that have like an ignorant sense of confidence like they feel like they can't fail so like do you have to fight that in pc that much or everybody feels the same and they learn the same that won't survive pc <laughs> that okay, sense won't, survive. won't survive pc yeah that won't okay. survive it survived some moot court and some mock trial competitions but you know pc one of the things i think is really great about pc and, and chris i'd be interested in what you think about this when i got to pc as a student, hmm. my sense, and I hope this is still true, my sense was nobody in practice court cares what you did before you got to PC. I mean, yeah. nobody's walking in there and like, <laughs> yeah. oh, those are the law review people. Oh, those are the really good moot court people. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. I don't know if the students care about that, but I think, I hope the students get the sense what came before doesn't matter now. Everybody's got a clean slate. A blank slate and we're going to be judged based on what we do in this classroom and in those courtrooms going for I don't know what do you, do you think that's right yeah I mean I'm a little bit uh, of the wrong person to ask because I was everybody else in that room <coughs> was ahead of me by a couple quarters uh, I did it about as early as I could and so I didn't really know too many other people in there but other than that yeah I mean absolutely I it wasn't until I think the day before I did the direct and cross uh, demo that I found out my opponent was, you know, a storied, uh, award-winning, uh, you know, mock trial champion and that kind of thing. I was like, oh, great, I'm about to get my butt handed. And I did, uh, for the record, got my butt handed to me. But, uh, yeah, no, it's just, I mean, everybody's, you know, everybody's subject to cold calls. Everybody's subject to the potential embarrassment of not being prepared, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. We don't, I, 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 I mean... I won't speculate on what my colleagues know, but I will infer from a number of circumstances and based on what they've said, we don't, and I know I don't, we don't know who the law review people are. Mm -hmm. We really don't know who the moot court people are. Now, the one exception is Professor Little does know because he's involved in the advocacy program sure. throughout, but we don't, we don't know that um, unless it just is one of those facts that happen to you know hit our brain. But, I mean, speaking for myself, if somebody told me a year before I go into a practice court classroom. Hey, so and so is like a really great advocate. I would not remember that fact by the time I got to practice court. Yeah, um, I just wouldn't. Yeah, um, and I think that there's enough of 
for better or worse, justified or unjustified, that sense of, uh, I'm going to use the word terror, but like just trepidation at the very least going into practice. I mean, I, I remember sitting there, you know, on that Sunday afternoon of our PC one uh, orientation and just being like, okay, like I do not know what, what's about to happen to me, right? And I think pretty much everybody is sitting there feeling like that. And so even in that sense, right? Yeah, you may have been, you know, hot stuff on a moot court team or whatever, but you're still sitting there really worried about what's about to happen to you. So I got a, I got an email this morning, um, and so did my, my colleagues in the practice court were copied on this, from a recent graduate who is on a trial team right now saying, I, 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 I can't say I enjoyed practice court while I was going through it, but I'm so grateful for it now. We are aiming for that. Mm -hmm. We want you to like practice court after you're done. Yeah. Not while you're going through it. And I think a lot of law professors, certainly my colleagues here at Baylor throughout you know, the curriculum, they would say, well, when we're educating students, we're thinking about their future clients. Because we know what they're going to be doing. We don't know exactly maybe what area of the law they're going to practice in, but we know that almost all of them are going to have clients. And so we want to educate them in a way that we can say we looked out for their future clients. And sometimes that means that the student won't like every experience in law school. You know, they won't like different, different things, especially that we do in practice court. But it, but there are things more important than short-term comfort you know there yeah. are because we, we can lose sight of it but when you have a law license you're given an incredible responsibility and privilege and it's one that can if not used properly can hurt people right you know, it can hurt people so we think about that well and I, I feel like both in explicit and unspoken ways you know you all the practice court faculty impose that I mean there's a lot of like hey, here's an advocacy tip, or hey, jot this one down, right? Which is obviously very forward thinking. We can't use that right now, or it's going to be, you know, every once in a while we might need to use that. So very obvious, you know, that that, that uh, you're thinking about our futures is is one of the primary considerations. Yeah, one, one more yeah. comment. Yeah, sure. I'd be just imagine that you were about to go into uh, surgery, and your physician, the surgeon, comes up to you, introduces himself to you, and then walks away, and you're nervous about the surgery, and the nurse comes up to you and says, he went to the easiest medical school in the country. They demanded very little of him. I mean, do you feel better or worse about that surgery, that surgeon and about the outcome of that surgery? So that's yeah, kind of where right. we're coming at this, just, yeah. to, just to put a finer point on sure go ahead no i wanted to ask you uh about this as well because you know piece the pc1 class is essentially entirely civil focus it's about you know pre-trial procedure that kind of thing in your class pc2 which is evidence we talk a lot about the criminal law and we read a lot of criminal cases that sort of thing in pc3 which is trial and post-trial procedure We've, we've had a few, um, like right now we're talking about Vordire, and so there's a lot you know, of, of uh, criminal cases that we're covering, that kind of thing. But for the most part, 
the focus is on civil. And so for our listeners, you know, obviously who are more interested in practicing criminal law, either as prosecutors or defense attorneys, what, um, what do they really need to focus on, either bringing into practice court and being ready, knowing that a lot of that's going to be civil-focused, or what can they you know, focus on during practice court to keep them driving toward their criminal uh, law goals? Well, first of all, they need to know it's voir dire, not voir dire. Oh, my gosh. I've been such no, an I'm, idiot. I'm kidding. I know, I'm kidding. You did it. You, you pronounced it <laughs> in the proper text. Voir dire. Yes. Um, yes. Well, you're right. We, we cover the Texas and federal rules of evidence, and we cover them in the context of both civil cases and criminal cases. Um, if I knew that I was going to be a prosecutor mm -hmm. or at some point anyway, criminal defense attorney, there are some topics that are going to come up more often in um, criminal cases than they are in civil cases. Um, character evidence is one. We cover the confrontation clause that's exclusive to criminal cases. On the advocacy side, I think um, if I were going to be a prosecutor and I had to choose between being excellent at, and I'd be curious to see what your other guests, but this was my observation. Sure. Um, and I had to choose between being excellent at direct examination or excellent at cross-examination. I'd want to be excellent at direct examination because you've got the burden. You're going to have a lot of witnesses. The defendant may or may not even call any of his own witnesses. Sure. Um, and if I were a criminal defense attorney, I'd want to be really good at cross-examination because of all those witnesses you're going to put on, I've got to discredit them. So... Um, I think that should be a, a, a something to something to think about for students who are coming in and they know they're going to go in on the uh, they want to practice as a prosecutor or a criminal defense attorney. Um, you know, there's lots of other differences, but most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, what the law of evidence is in a civil case, it's also that in a criminal case. And to be sure, there are a number of important differences, all of which we'll expect you to know. Right. But there's a lot of overlap. I mean, they're not entirely separate, distinct um, bodies of law. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I, I certainly found myself, you know, as somebody who knows he wants to be a prosecutor, that, that stuff clicked a lot easier for me, or I could, you know, even from my experience, uh, Limestone County, uh, remember when I had seen some of that in action. Um, I'm just, you know, other than the fact that we have to practice, uh, excuse me, complete practice court to graduate and we have to, you know, pass the bar and that kind of thing. Um, are there any skills or any specific uh, takeaways maybe from the more civil focused classes uh, that our, our criminal focused people really need to, to engage with or, or make sure that they're not, they're not sleeping on anything like that? Well, though, that question's probably better for Professor Wren and Professor Fraley, uh, but I think we all of us want to inculcate in our students the importance of attention to detail. Mm -hmm. and that's something that we, we focus on throughout the curriculum. But the other, for, for me leaving practice court, this was my, this for me was the biggest benefit I saw for myself 
um, in practice court. And I think this helps you regardless of what, what your area of practice is. What I learned is I can do more than I thought I could. Mm-hmm. My bandwidth was much, yeah. much bigger than I, I thought. Um, you know, the, the ability to work a lot, I can do that more than I thought. And so when I went out into practice, um, you know, it, it seemed like uh, I was running at a pace I could maintain. You know, yeah. I can do this. And I, and I think it's something that you have to, you have to work at being um, able to work for long periods of time. So what we're trying to simulate in practice court is you're in trial. Yeah. You know? and, and you're not always in trial, and, and, but when you are, the workload spikes. When you're reaching you know, in a transactional practice, you're going to close on a deal, um, the work level spikes. You have to be able to do that. Now, you don't have to maintain it for 30 years of your career, right. but you got to be able to do that. In practice court, I think for me, I went away thinking, I can do more than I thought I could. Yeah, I mean, I really can, both in terms of what I've got the confidence to do, but in my capacity to do work. Yeah, And I think that's a huge benefit for all, all students. But again, it's one you don't appreciate while it's happening. You know? Sure. You don't yeah. appreciate while it's happening. You appreciate it a year out, you know, six yeah. months out, 18 months out. It, I think it translates as, wow, I thought I was busy before in law school. Yeah. and But you have no idea what busy is until you get, yeah. I mean, and not, you know, every practice court student kind of says, oh, I'm so busy or I'm losing this yeah. much sleep. But that's that's an interesting, um, kind of a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. Like, you're in trial. This is the pace you have to be able to go at. Yeah. So, very interesting. It's kind of like a forced Rocky montage. Yeah. Like you're getting the workout with Nikki regardless. Like, yeah. you have no choice. But you're going to be Rocky at the end of it. I feel like I'm at the part of the montage. Isn't there one where he like keeps hitting him with a medicine ball over and over, and he's like, "Come on, come on!" I feel like I'm getting hit with a medicine ball. Um, well, Professor, we with the time that we have left, I I wanted to ask you. Now, I I know that through I think through Mrs. Tobin, I think through Beth Tobin, she told us that for a while uh, you were prosecuting cases here in McLennan County. Is that right? That's true. Okay, <laughs> good. Yeah, facts are correct. Uh, when was that and why did you decide to go do that? Since, I mean, you hadn't, you know, been a prosecutor earlier in your career, what spurred you to want to go do that for a little while? Um, I, so, so I did that and I, I'm, I hope I don't get these dates wrong. I did that in 2009, 2010. Okay. Um, and I wanted to, the, the one the one thing that I, I love my job, I love being at Baylor Law and, and doing what I do. But I had come to point where I, I want to I want to try some cases again. Yeah. And um, I so that was part of the reason. Uh, part of the reason was there, there was just an opportunity. I mean, Beth Tobin was here in McLennan County. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, John Segrist was was mm-hmm. was the DA at the time. And so it just, you know, it just fit. You know, we, we here at the law school knew people there, and so it was possible. And I had the support of my colleagues to do it, to, you know, not be here uh, in the building. And, I, and so there, there was that opportunity. We also needed somebody in practice court who had a little bit, at least, of 
criminal experience. Yeah. And we and we we hit a point where we didn't. And so I was like, hey, I'll I, I'll go get that experience. And um, so now we of Very course cool. do have people and you know with Richard Alpert and others that that that, that have you know, decades of of experience. But at the time we had a little bit of a place where we didn't have that. And so I wanted I wanted to try some cases anyway. So that's cool. what I that's what I did. That was right. How long did you do that? I'm sorry. You said so it was a, it was a six month okay stint. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, and I'm sure you know we were talking storytelling earlier. We'd love to hear any war stories or any you know top of the mind best best two or three experiences you had while you were out there doing that. Um, I'll t- I'll tell this one because um, I, I this is this is one that left an impression on me. Um, it's a case I tried with Beth Tobin and Mark Parker and. It was an aggravated assault case, and I may have shared this with your class, I can't remember, but um, I helped put on the punishment case, which was tried to a jury, and they sentenced him to life in prison. And I remember hearing those words. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they said 99 years or life. Sure. And, um, you know, he's probably going to die in prison. And when he does, I'll have had a hand in it. And that was a big moment. It wasn't like, I think they were wrong. It wasn't guilt. It was just the magnitude of it. The magnitude of it. And I'd only tried civil cases. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And just the the lives that change every day in courthouses that handle criminal cases. I mean, just, just every day. Certain times you go to the courthouse, lives are changing by the minute, you know? And right. it's, it's really, really just the magnitude of it. For me, that's when it, that's when it sunk in, was that moment. And I think because I'd been a part of it. I mean, I've been in courtrooms watching people take, you know, uh, you know pleading guilty and getting their sentence and, and, and those concerts. But, but this time, yeah. you know, I was, I was part of it. It just drives home for me, just a reminder of what I said earlier. You know, it's yeah. such a privilege to be a lawyer, but it's an incredible responsibility, and we all need those moments where we go, oh, you know. And it made me want to work harder, you know, work smarter. As a prosecutor, make sure that the person really is guilty, that justice does require a conviction, because that's your job as a prosecutor is to do justice, not just to secure a conviction in every case and um, and certainly I think that was a case where conviction was definitely appropriate in a lengthy prison sentence to boot but um, that was a really that was a moment that has stuck with me lots of moments from that experience such a great experience mm-hmm. such great people to, to work with um, but but that was for me that was a moment early on in my my brief time there that really stuck with me must be pretty cool then to be teaching all these other future attorneys that are going to have their own moments in that way and like to make that much of an impact like to put the roots in for the tree yeah branch out is that well like- that's the great that's that's the great thing about the job that I have is you know I <laughs> I get to take a little bit of credit for all the successes you're going to have you you don't have to give it to me I'm going to take it <laughs> I'm going to take it. And, and no, we do. We, we take a lot of pride in our students who go out there and um, do great things. Um, and yeah, that's, 
that's that's the measure of success for me is the what what our what our students were doing Perfect. after they graduate. Cool. Well, we really appreciate you coming on the show today, mm-hmm. Professor. Um, is there anything we didn't ask you that you wanted us to ask you? I, I'm smart enough to know not to answer that. <laughs> now, here's another one <laughs> this for is you. Not, this is not a deposition. This is not a... <laughs> we, uh, we've had, you know, some people say things on this podcast that get turned into t-shirts. Any merchandise slogans that you want to pepper out there for us? What happens with these t-shirts? Are they sold or? Well, so like our criminal law we society them. t-shirts. Yeah. Say you distribute them for a price though, right? You're selling them to. Well, no, we gave them to our members for free. And we were able to do that because it was promoting our community. Well, where are you getting the money to make the t-shirts in the first place? You don't have a t-shirt shop here. SBA yeah, funding. SBA, probably. I guess. You SBA ask. funding. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So it's all for a good cause. Anything? Uh... <laughs> we're, not, we're not selling them, but. That's good. Um, I think you should sell them, and I think the T-shirt should say, "Counselor gets a cut." That's hey, what I think the T-shirt go. should say. Counselor gets a cut. Yeah. Mugs you won't sell just... one. You won't <laughs> like, sell any. But <laughs> it's like a PC tax. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, thanks again for yeah. joining us. This, it's been it's great. It's been a pleasure, uh, listeners. We're going to leave it there for this week. This has been another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. Until next time, y'all take care. Bye.